Morning with Carly Wiesel, your one-stop shop for the stories, secrets, and shenanigans of a popcorn-fueled theme park journalist. I'm Carly Wiesel, and I am back in the podcast factory! I took last week off, as you know, to focus on fundraising for cast members and theme park employees and to catch up on future episodes, which didn't quite happen because I do everything last minute, as we will cover later in this episode. But either way, it's so good to be back. This is so nice, and I really missed it even though I only took a few days off. Now, nothing's really happening on the home front. In previous episodes, I've talked about driving through St. George and eating a bunch of snackies, maybe going to a mountaintop amusement park, but really, all I've done is watch the documentary Class Action Park while eating a pound of jelly beans this weekend, which was fantastic. And yesterday, my friend and fellow Disney fan Jeffrey Epstein brought me treats from downtown Disney. My first taste of downtown Disney in so many months since I haven't been back yet. He brought a pumpkin pie Rice Krispie treat that tasted like pumpkin and looked like pumpkin pie. It was very cute. And churro toffee, which I'm obsessed with and was as good as I remember. A lot of times when I don't go to the parks for a few months and then I finally get a treat that I love, I'm like, oh no, I imagined it as being better than it is. And then those quickly disappear from my favorites list. But the churro toffee, it's just as good as I remember. Oh my gosh, it was divine. Now, I want to say up top, before we get into this episode, that the angle is a bit weird when juxtaposed against the fact that people are still continuing to find out that they are losing their theme park jobs. It's why we skipped last week's podcast, but this episode was kind of locked in for today's release, so we had to go forward with it as episode 9. My heart breaks for everyone who has been furloughed, lost their job, or sadly, both. And I'm so sorry to hear of so many people going through a tough time. I will discuss our fundraiser details for food insecure theme park employees shortly, but I just wanted to say from the get-go that while this episode is technically all about work, we're focusing on the before times, the pre-pandemic times, when things were steady and debatably good. This podcast launching when it did wound up having a different goal than it first intended to, and I now want to come here and whisk you away on a theme park cloud for the next hour or two, just discussing the things we love without dwelling on the current situation, but not ignoring it either. So please know, while this episode dives deep into the ins and outs of being a theme park journalist, this isn't at all intended to boast that we have jobs or be a slight to anyone who is currently out of work. Because trust me, the cross-section of travel and publishing in 2020 is not such a great place to be either. So we'll be focusing more on the longevity of some people's careers as we speak to them in this episode and what this job is like in normal times, not the fact that everything has changed forever and that the industry itself is facing massive struggles. As many of you know, 28,000 Disney cast members are losing their jobs, and it's absolutely heartbreaking because a lot of these are the people who make our vacations special, who craft those memories that we hold so dear and are the reason that we return to these places. So a few members of my Facebook group, my Facebook Fomaly, have banded together to create a Fomaly 5K, a virtual run the last weekend of this month, as well as a raffle. And this raffle 
which they put together about a week ago, and I helped publicize and basically just shout from the rooftop since, has exploded both in terms of money raised and the gifts that we're giving away. Once we announced it wide outside of the group, we had so many people come and email them and say that they wanted to donate things for it. So the raffle has now been split into three massive prize packs. They're themed to attractions and kind of channeling the Disney magic at home. And for anyone who's very into Stony Clover Lane, there is even now a $500 Stony Clover Lane gift card that you can win. There's just so much stuff. There's lounge fly backpacks. There's a whiskey tasting. There's some stuff from my personal collection that I've gotten at events, things like that. It is unbelievable. I am so in awe of the way people have banded together to share their time, to share their money, to donate to such a great cause. Now, the fundraiser all proceeds from the 5K from the raffle, as well as Foamily merch, which is being sold on Bonfire. There's a link for that through the Eventbrite, which is getting very confusing. But anyway, all proceeds from everything go to both Cast Member Pantry, which supports food insecure theme park employees, as well as Second Harvest Food Bank in Orange County, so that we're covering both coasts. I want to thank Melinda Welch, Meredith Miller, and Kelly Schumer for working so unbelievably hard on keeping this going. They have spent so much time on this, more than I ever could have contributed, and I am so amazed by them each and every single day. I also want to thank Lauren and Mallory for putting together the 5K race bibs. I am not a runner. I will be slowly speed walking in honor of everyone later this month, but I am still right there with them, even though I refuse to run at a junior high gym pace. You know what? Running is punishment. And I don't want to do it. Thank you just so much to everyone who participated and donated and assisted. And as of Sunday night, we, I believe, had hit $16,000 raised. $16,000. I cannot believe how much money that is. I saw the email and was like, where's that comma? It totally took me aback. I'm so amazed by the hard work they have done. I'm so proud of them. I'm so happy for them. I'm so glad that I was able to join in and scream it from the rooftops. They have done all of the work. They are fantastic. And I am so, so happy for everything that's happening. I will put a link to this in the show notes, etc., etc. But please, if you can, buy a raffle ticket. They're five bucks and you can win so much cool stuff. So much cool stuff. There's one more thing I have to share with you all, and that's some big news on the home front this week. We are launching a Patreon! I wrote this whole dumb spiel about why I'm doing it and why my podcast team encouraged me to do it and what my thoughts are behind it and everything like that, but really, I'm just excited to talk about it and I can't wait to share more details with you. So forget that speech because we're getting into it. If you love the podcast, if you love very amusing, everything's going to stay the same. Just know that from the top. You will still get a much too long episode of Very Amusing each week of each season. It's still my relentless labor of love and nothing will change there because you know me, I can't do anything halfway. But the Patreon will be bonus material, extra stuff, cool stuff I'm creating specifically for subscribers. And it's not just podcast related things either. We're going to have one tier for five bucks a month. That's it. And we're just going to give it a shot and see how it goes. If you don't like the things that are offered, maybe we'll change them down the line. But so far, I think the lineup is really good and pretty robust, all things considered. 
So if you join the Very Amusing Patreon, you will get four to six exclusive mini episodes a month. Now, these are just short little ones, just single subject focused, not researched, not as in-depth, just loosey-goosey and really, really fun. You'll also get a weekly Q&A, ask me anything type discussion through Patreon, which I'm envisioning is like a readable version of our churro hotline for when you're bored at your desk, but maybe you're listening to Julie and the Phantoms on repeat like I am and don't necessarily want to tune on a podcast. That's cool. That's why we're doing it digitally. You'll also get a monthly exclusive newsletter, which, and I'm trying to do this and I think it's going to work, I can make into a zine. So you'll get this monthly little digital theme park bananas nonsense magazine. And I'm most excited about this offering. So stay tuned for what that looks like. You'll also get future discounts on merch, which is coming very, very soon. Hint, hint. And a welcome greeting from Morty, my dog, when you sign up. So come join our little internet party. It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. And I'll be donating a portion of all signups in the first week to causes that directly benefit theme park employees, especially union-based food drives and causes. So we'd love to have you. Please join. And next up, we're going to dive into the news and then get serious about what it's like for a day in the life as someone who reports on theme parks. In this week's Disney news, one of the biggest stories has been, of course, that the layoffs have continued. We discussed it earlier, but basically, we're not done seeing the full realm of those 28,000 layoffs. And it's really hard to watch along, especially if you have cast members in your Twitter feed. Now, the Walt Disney Company also announced it would be restructuring earlier this week. A lot of that is on the entertainment division with Disney+. And frankly, myself and some other reporters could not understand a single word of the announcement that was sent out. It is a lot of multimedia jargon. But thankfully, Drew Taylor at Collider wrote up a story that explains it for those of us who are more rooted in parks than we are in streaming service lingo. So I highly recommend checking that story out. Some other things that happened. There is a Space Mountain movie on its way. Interesting. Disneyland, of course, remains closed, but Governor Gavin Newsom apparently sent some members of his team to Walt Disney World and to some other Florida parks last week to see what their reopening procedures were like. While the debate between the Walt Disney Company and the state of California continues as to when Disneyland may open, in the meantime, word has spread that cast members involved in Frozen Live at the Hyperion and Mickey and the Magical Map, the two big stage shows at Disneyland Resort, have received notices of separation and have been told that those shows will not go on. It's a total bummer, especially because those are fan favorites, but with the way 2020 is shaping up to be, it unfortunately makes sense. Now, there is one other change happening at Walt Disney World that has truly affected me in ways I did not anticipate. It is that they demolished or apparently demolished, but they demolished the clown from the Luna Park pool at Disney's boardwalk. The iconic clown, he's terrifying, yes, but he is iconic, who was on that pool slide has been dismantled. 
I spoke to AJ Wolf at Disney Food Blog, and she told me that it was part of a refurbishment. But I'm, I don't know if I can cling to the word refurbishment because what if they don't bring back the clown in a new way? What if there's just no more clown? The clown is truly a sticker on my laptop from Brandy Lane, this brand that made a special pack of boardwalk-themed stickers. And all I'm going to say is if they get rid of the nanny chair, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose it. This is all we have. Like those silly, silly little old school iconic things with the boardwalk make me so happy. And knowing that that clown is gone is really upsetting. I'm realizing now that I've pretty much given you exclusively sad news between layoffs and iconic emblems being destroyed. I guess it's been a tough week and I didn't realize it. But hopefully next week we will get some better news, some brighter days, and I will have more optimistic things to share with you. Okay, you know that feeling that everyone knows something that you don't? For me, that used to be Quince, but no more. Quince is a truly astounding retailer, essentially carrying everything a person on your mood board would wear. We're talking washable silk blouses, chic leather bags, 14 karat gold jewelry, European linen dresses, and the best part of all is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They're up here with $50 Mongolian cashmere sweaters. $50! Beautiful, timeless items you can wear and actually live in. Meaning, you don't have to be scared to bring them on your theme park travels. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And if you're sensitive to retailers like I am, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. But it's not just your everyday work-life clothes. They have everything. I recently joined a new gym, big deal for me, and desperately needed new workout clothes to wear there. It's kind of like an LA gym. Like, it kind of got to look cute. So I ordered a pair of their ultra-form bike shorts and high-rise pocket leggings. And when I tell you, the quality of these leggings is truly on par with brands I paid three times as much for, which really kind of makes me love these three times more. I'm not only going to buy them again, but actually buy the other travel stuff in my cart because they have things like beautiful pastel suitcases for 129 bucks and these wildly affordable compression packing cubes that I have been waiting forever to buy compression packing cubes and they're always so pricey and here the price fits. So if you want to get ready for work, your new gym, travel, anything in your life, go to Quince. Quince.com slash amusing will get you free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Ooh, that's nice for someone who puts stuff off like I do. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash amusing to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash amusing. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. This week, we're talking everything you've ever, 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 
ever wanted to know about what it's like to write about theme parks from the people who do it every day. From the top, I'm going to tell you what it's like to be at a press event, to interview an Imagineer, to take a hard hat tour of a not-yet-built land, and how to keep every bizarro fact straight about a completely made-up land with a completely made-up language. We're talking shop, we're talking never-before-heard stories, we're making offhand jokes about the financial realities of being a journalist, which are somewhat bleak, but this one is all about how the sausage gets made. It may be more detail than you've ever wanted to know about what it's like to professionally report about these places, but really no one talks about this stuff. It's kind of shrouded in mystery, and I wanted to, once and for all, discuss what it's like to do this strange thing that many of us do professionally. Now, this episode covers what our job was like until about mid-March. We'll get into it, but things have been extremely different lately, which many of you know firsthand. So know that while we're laughing about being up too late in hotel rooms or running around theme parks chasing a story, that's really not most of our current lives, which we hope will resume at a to-be-determined future date. But generally speaking, especially for those of us who live out of state and myself, given that California parks are still currently closed, we're really not at theme parks right now. So we're going to focus on what a normal year is like and not what it's like to sit at home and write about these things from afar. So let's get into it. Off the top, no matter where these convos go, I am extremely, extremely grateful for everything I've been able to experience on the job. I've traveled the world to report on theme parks, which itself is a blessing. I've been on cruises, Adventures by Disney trips. It's been an incredible ride, but I do want to stress it's never vacation, even when... (laughs) It's vacation. My husband told me he hates going to the parks with me because I'm just always reporting. Back in normal times, I'd constantly be asking operational questions or if menu items have changed or if something's vegan or even loading questions. When we were in Shanghai last year on vacation, on a holiday vacation, I was still asking about the way they load pirates to someone who speaks another language. This was my top priority on my one day at Shanghai Disneyland to figure out which line of the queue spits out into which row of the ride and how many people sit in each row. I can't help it. It's how I visit these parks and I love to do it, but I can't turn the reporter off in me. It's just how I like to explore spaces, even in my free time. One of the most unique parts of the job is always the press event. Ooh, They're shrouded in some sort of mystery, which perhaps I've accidentally aided in because I never post from them. I really don't like sharing things that regular guests can't do. That's something that Disney themselves tries to push, and I believe in that also. I'm all about focusing on how to enhance guest experience. I'm really there to learn things and then tell you how to plan your trip, what to expect, what surprises you'll see, what's cool about a ride, what you can expect if you have motion sickness, where to sit on a brand new ride to get a better experience things like that. I never like to share what one-night-only dessert were being served at a random press party, but I'm still going to tell you everything that goes down at them. So here's a cheat sheet of what it's like inside these silly little laminated pass shindigs. So as someone who lives out of state, you'll fly in, arrive at your hotel, and head to an empty hotel room or conference room or sometimes a table in the lobby and check in. 
Here you're given a bunch of stuff, a folder with an itinerary, a very detailed schedule, fact sheets, usually a USB drive that has photos of the attraction or land on it, your laminate for the event, which you have to wear the whole time, and somehow I've never lost one. It seems very on brand for me to lose them, but I usually tie them on my purse so that nothing goes wrong. And sometimes you'll get information on what section you'll be standing in for a grand opening moment. And then there's usually some kind of small gift. A lot of times, especially at Disney, it'll be a themed bag to whatever's opening at that moment. I believe for Pandora, it was a messenger bag. For Rise of the Resistance, it was like a a sling pack, a smaller version of that. Sometimes maybe a hat or ears, depending on the situation and what resort you're at. And if you're at Disney World, a magic band linked to your park admission. Often, More often lately, actually at Disney, you'll be assigned a rep. They're casually referred to among us as red shirts, and they come from different areas of the company. So you'll often be paired with someone who you'd never meet otherwise, which sometimes can be very cool. A lot of times they don't have a car, but if they do, they can drive you straight from the hotel to the event and you feel like you're royalty. And it's amazing because if you're like me and you're running out the door late, you are saved by this. But usually they're just there to keep you on track. They're super helpful with keeping you on schedule. If you're unfamiliar with the parks, they will tell you everything. They're super knowledgeable. But for people like me, who at this point somehow know their way around backstage, I've never worked at a Disney park. And yet I know exactly where to go behind the scenes at all four parks and even where to park a car. I I don't know why, but I find them to be most useful for making sure I'm on time for interviews because whoo, baby, I like to cut it close. I love to schmooze and I am there within 30 seconds of the time I'm supposed to be. And thankfully for the reps, they're like, girl, you got to go. Come on. And I'm only there on time because of their help. Now, usually there is some sort of welcome dinner on opening night, and these meals are often in like big spaces, like a convention space that's been slightly transformed within one of the hotels, or sometimes it's dinner at a brand new restaurant, like when Universal opened Big Fire. We had the whole place to ourselves, and by ourselves, I mean a couple hundred people. But still, it's usually a pretty casual setup. A small portion of the evening has a speech or an announcement. Maybe there's a character out for 20 to 30 minutes you can take a photo with. And there's always different buffet-style tables that you go up and get different servings of different stuff. Sometimes it's food from the park. Sometimes it's just regular event dining, things like that. Though sometimes there is a chafing tray of Mickey pretzels. I've seen that at Disneyland, and it's amazing. (laughs) Now, the big event, or whatever you're there to cover, obviously varies, but typically it's the day before a ride or a land opens to the public, and it starts early. 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 I'm coming from California, so I'm already at a disadvantage, and I'm a woman, so I'm already at a disadvantage. So I have to wake up at what would probably be 3.30 LA time to get camera ready for one of these events. There's usually a breakfast set up at the hotel or park, which I know nothing about because I almost never make it. Because again, I am always 10 minutes late at these things. Thankfully, I know the routine and I know which things I can be a little late for at this point, but I'm late. I'm the worst. So you all pile onto coach buses, drive to the destination, and usually the big day begins with some sort of panel or audience style setup where you hear more details about what's to come. Sometimes they'll even announce news at these. Sometimes there's an onstage interview. It always differs. But after that, it's go time. 
You'll often be given a schedule that allows you a certain time to come experience the ride, maybe a few predetermined interviews, and you'll spend the day bouncing around trying to get every answer to every bizarro question you need to set your story apart from everyone else's all day long. In summation, it sounds pretty straightforward, but it's more like me melting under the stress and sun of 100 degree heat, trying to find every hidden detail within Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, while also trying to get someone who is trained to not spill the beans to spill the beans anyway. It rarely works. It's just all about trying to squeeze out a little tidbit about how they built a certain segment of an attraction, or how something within it works, or a ride secret, or an Easter egg, anything like that that people will want to know. There's usually some sort of area of the park annexed for a media center, which more responsible people than I hole up in and go through video footage or churn out a story, while I show up after lunch ended always, I always miss lunch, and eat a kind bar for a meal. There's also always this table with like extremely useful crap. And I mean that lovingly. I have a Disney Parks chip clip. I have some pads of paper. I have this very cool antibacterial gel chapstick duo thing. And the greatest thing ever that Valerie Marino from our theme park food episode told me about. A print of Mickey and the gang dressed as reporters in front of Cinderella Castle. They're taking notes and photos and doing interviews, and Huey, Dewey, and Louie are also there eating ice cream cones, and the caption is, Mickey and pals, get the scoops. It is possibly my most prized possession. I had it professionally framed. I feel like it was created for me, and I never even knew this table existed until Valerie told me about it, so I am forever indebted to her. My chips stay fresh, and also... My office has wonderful art, all from this random, random table of stuff. After a full day of note-taking and interviews and running around nonstop, there's usually a couple-hour break from about like 4 to 6 p.m.-ish, so you can get some work done or eat your first meal of the day, probably. Or if you're like me, you use that time to catch up on social media. I'm usually reporting at least two stories while I'm there, but usually I'm doing a social media takeover for a magazine or website, or just blasting things out on Instagram as quickly as physically possible. This is often the first time anyone's really come in to experience what we're there for, and it's really important to get that news out as fast as possible. And then, come nighttime, the fun begins. There's usually like a loosey-goosey party, as I mentioned before, with buffet stations, music, so many high top tables, like so many tall tables covered in black tablecloths. And there's always a moment after you eat where there's entertainment or a grand opening, something like that. Sometimes you're still gathering your work and your notes while at the nighttime event, but I do my best to leave those hours reporting free so I can soak up as much of the environment and experience of being there as a guest as, we'll get into this later in the episode, the real work is done in the wee hours of the night. That being said, we never really get to see the lands function normally until they're open to the public, which is especially difficult when it comes to reporting on how rides are loaded, operational specifics, and most importantly, food. Often they'll have sample versions, miniatures really, of a Ronto wrap or a Toy Story Land opening, some of the items from Woody's lunchbox. But it can make it really, really tricky to do food stories when something first opens because you can't review that. It would be extremely irresponsible, which is why I generally try to wait on pitching food stories until things have been open for a while and services evened out, which is often how reviews of restaurants in major cities are handled. Then, 
The next day, you wake up extremely early for some sort of breakfast and forward-looking panel of what's to come at the resort. Sometimes news gets announced here, sometimes not. Occasionally, there will be a little interview or a tour afterwards for something new. But usually, I'm too tired to know what is going on all day long. And in a catatonic state, too much so to process new information. And then... You fly home. Or if you're me, you spend all the money you just made from two days of work on extending that trip at a resort to squeeze out a little bit of proper vacation. One of the biggest things that might surprise people to hear, which we're about to touch on, is that we all have our own annual passes. I personally have Disney's Premier Pass, which costs a terrible amount of money, but it's truly the one work expense I really need. Even if admission is covered while you're reporting at an event, you don't want anyone dictating when you can and cannot visit the parks, and often, since our events are the day before an attraction opens, you won't be granted access once it's open to the public, and sometimes you have to return to do more reporting. I take the hit once a year on the pass and then report all of my stories off the back of it. And obviously, it makes sense because we all like theme parks. We love visiting them and often become friends with people who also like visiting them too. Speaking of friends who love theme parks, when I showed up to my very first press event, I knew nobody. I didn't know a soul. My mom often travels with me if I'm able to have a guest in my room, but she can't come to any of the work stuff. Since then, I've met some of the most wonderful people I've ever had an opportunity of spending time with, both among reporters and people who work at these parks at some of these events. And we just so happen to have a handful of them lined up for this week's episode. Now, first up, we have Valerie Marino, who's been on the podcast before. She's a fellow theme park reporter and friend who has done some very cool stuff in the name of reporting. She's going to help debunk the myth that writing is easy because it is not easy and shared her perspective about why she loves to cover theme parks. What are the biggest challenges you face in reporting on theme parks? time <laughs> just being able to balance everything out so i so theme park reporting is my side gig and i work full time in um higher ed communications so anytime i am you know with you at an event opening or something like that i'm using vacation time <laughs> and um and yeah j- not only that but you know when there's news that breaks you know i I remember, oh, I hope my boss isn't going to hear this. Um, I like, I, so <laughs> during the whole um, straw about paper straws, <laughs> that, that broke in the middle of a work day. And my editor wanted me to do a story on paper straws. I'm like, oh, I guess I'm not going to do my other job for an hour or so, you know, and stuff happens sometimes. And just being able to, um, to juggle all of that and, and balance everything out because I, I love, I really love getting to do what we do and it's so worth it. Um, but it, it does take an effort. The parks themselves, as you know, have changed so much in the past half decade. Yeah. Um, how has that affected how you report stories or what you report on? I mean, everything's just gotten a lot more complicated. They're so, so I started, I guess it was not long after the advent of magic bands. So we were really toward the beginning of FastPass Plus and and all of this. And, you know, there are just so many, I mean, as any 
park goer knows or anyone who's planned a trip to Disney World in the last few years. There are just so many different rules and deadlines and dates that you need to juggle. And this is when dining reservations open and, and all of that. And and they change. <laughs> and and keeping up with all of that, at, not just when you're reporting a story, but afterwards and making sure that the stuff that you have written that lives on the internet is accurate too. Um, yeah, it's, there's a lot to keep in your head. I wholeheartedly agree. (laughs) Is there anything that's super exclusive or noteworthy or unique that you've been able to do within the theme parks at Disneyland or at Disney World Resorts? Yes. Uh, I had the opportunity once to have dinner in one of the private lounges at the base of Spaceship Earth. What? Yes. I did not um, know about this. So, you know how they're, how Epcot has corporate sponsors and each of the sponsors has a lounge, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I was on a trip. This was the trip that I took for Golden Oak. So they were telling us about all the different experiences that you could have as a member and apparently, or as a homeowner. And apparently one of them is being able to have private dinners in the parks. So one of the corporate lounges had recently been vacated. I want to say it was the Siemens Lounge because of where it was located. Um, and that partnership ended, had ended right around that time. And so they brought us in and they, it was a catered, a catered meal. And you're looking out over the plaza that has now sadly been demolished, but where the fountain was and all of that. And the butter was shaped like Mickey's Mouse, Mickey Mouse heads. And The best part was they brought in Mickey, Minnie, and Pluto to take photos with everyone. And they were wearing their special outfits from the Year of a Million Dreams promotion. What? (laughs) What? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have been friends with you for years. We are colleagues. I consider us very close. I did not know about this. (laughs) What? So, yeah, it was it was incredible. And I we, we kind of recognized the outfits, but I had to, I had to Google it. And so, you know, so for those who don't know me, I, I, I very much have like a Pokemon mentality of, um, of character (laughs) photos, like gotta catch them all. Like one of my big regrets in life is that I never went to magic kingdom when they were doing the overnight thing when that they did on. Oh yes. The 24 hour year. yeah. Yeah. Because I, Oh, what would I do? My kingdom for a photo with Mickey Mouse in his pajamas. My God. So the fact that they brought in them, they brought them in and they were wearing these special outfits that you just can't see anymore because that ended in what, like 2008. Um, it was so special. <laughs> I can't. Oh, my God. I'm nauseous over this. This is so cool. I can't believe that you got to see that while in a Spaceship Earth lounge while having OG Mickey butter, which is impossible to find these days. Yeah. Is there anything that people might be surprised by within our line of work? I think a lot of people would be surprised that we're not paid by Disney. They don't pay us. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is true. Yes. No one's getting paid. <laughs> and also, I will add, nobody is getting just a stack of free tickets. I think there no. is a large misconception that we can get people into the park for free like cast members. Or that which- we can get ourselves into the park for free. <laughs> yes. Yes. If you're there for a work event, you usually have a park ticket just because you're in the park. Mm-hmm. So I believe probably legally you need to have admission to enter. Yeah. But it, we all buy our own annual passes. If you see us there, we are... Yep. Spending money out of pocket for debatable research. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I can't I can't say that there aren't perks to the gig oh, um, because we, we have a lot of really fun opportunities. But um, yeah, it, it, you know, it, it, whenever people ask me about the, like the questions that I get on Instagram from acquaintances and even from my own mother sometimes, like it really comes back to the money thing. Like they th- they think that it's just flowing in from all directions and that we're getting all the all these kickbacks or something and no 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 yes and um unlike publishing which is uh an industry that is not thriving right now in addition to that we often spend our own money on top of that to go to the parks and extend work trips and things like that oh it was an exciting year when i did not when i was doing my taxes and did not take a loss on this job There was a celebration. Uh-huh. It is all work-related, but it is yeah. pricey. Yeah. I think something that also people don't know that both you and I have experienced is being up until probably the crack of dawn in our hotels <laughs> at Disney World, just desperately trying to churn out copy. Oh I think that God. obviously we don't really post photos of that on Instagram because it's mm-hmm. you're sleepy and in jammies and just like trying desperately to finish something. No one pillows stacked that. on you as a desk. But yeah. like, you know what that's like. You know, that's like yeah. to go to an event all day, be out until 1030 and then go back mm-hmm. and have to somehow cobble together a very well-worded story. Yeah. And and every time we go to one of these events or have an opening or something, or, you know, a new attractions opening, I always tell myself I'm going to pre-write, but no amount of pre-writing saves you from the 3 a.m. doom. Because there's only yes. there's only so much you can do until you actually experience something like that's the thing. Like, and you can't, you know, this this is one of those jobs that you have to report in person. There's no... There's no supplement for actually experiencing something. Um, you, you can't just go on Twitter and see what other people are saying. And, and especially when we're covering something that's brand new and, you know, on the rare occasion that there's an embargo, um, that everyone's going to drop their story at the same time. And there's such an importance put on being first. Yeah. Um, that, Yeah. I'm familiar with the Disney all nighters. <laughs> yes. And it's, it's so funny because a lot of times, and also this is, I want to say in tandem to this, that we have a wonderful job. We love everything about it. Mm-hmm. We are not at all complaining about parts of the job that allows us to do incredible things, yeah. but I do well, also I'll complain about the 6am wake up calls. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Those are <laughs> intense, especially as someone who flies in from California. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just don't sleep for a week. Um, I, I do think though that people just see us smiling in front of rides and they're like, what the hell is that life? And there's so much more to it that just isn't as photogenic. Yeah. Um, I, it is so interesting because I always approach it as I like go, I ride the ride, I go to the events, I go to the panels, whatever. I have the best time. And mm-hmm. then I have to go back to the room and it's like, oh no, <laughs> like yeah. the work. I The work the, starts. Yeah. I believe that sometimes actors are like, acting is the fun part. I would do that for free. I get paid to do the interviews mm-hmm. and it feels like, like nothing feels workish about being able to go on a new roller coaster, but no. then um, trying to eloquently write something about it that sums up a feeling can be challenging. Yeah, it's so hard. And it's it's hard to, you know, do it in a way that's not what everyone else is going to be writing. Absolutely. Too. Yeah. Because there yeah. are so many people writing so many things at the exact same time about the exact mm-hmm. same thing. And yeah. uh, it, it's a lot. It's a lot sometimes. Yeah. 
but I also do like reading other people's stories and seeing what they thought. Absolutely. Valerie Marino's stories can be found in Condé Nast Traveler, CNN, Mike, and beyond. She recently wrote an essay, I'm a huge Disney fan, but I'm not ready to return to Disney World for Condé Nast Traveler, and I highly recommend you check it out. As you probably know by now, if you've heard me on any other podcast, I've been a professional reporter for, oh my gosh, 12 years and wound up covering Disney after I had my bachelorette party at Disney World on a complete whim. I've done corporate copywriting, I've done content management and e-commerce and brand social media, I've reported about music and fashion and food and fitness, but it's nothing like what I've experienced with theme parks, particularly Disney. You see, at the end of the day, Disney parks are part of one of the biggest entertainment corporations ever in existence. There's not a lot of wiggle room in interviews. Even when you don't think you're doing business reporting, you're kind of doing business reporting. And their fans, you all, pride themselves on being experts, which is incredible. And everyone knows so much. The amount of fact checking that I have gotten through by relying on Disney fans has saved my butt more times than I care to admit. But oh my gosh, does writing for that type of fan base make fact-checking hard? Because if you call something by the wrong name or reference it incorrectly, whoo boy, you're going to hear about it and you're going to feel very dumb. I phoned a couple things in here and there in my day. It's just how it is. But I've never been able to do it when it comes to theme parks and frankly have never wanted to. I can't just slide by on the surface when reporting on these things, which means that I dive deep into the details of all lands and rides and news, which is how I'm reporting to you here on this podcast. That's what we do at Very Amusing. I've always considered Disney fans to be extreme reliable experts. But no expert holds a candle to Arthur Levine. Arthur is the guy. He's been in the business for years. He covers everything, of course, but he really knows the ins and outs of how things work, which amazes me. I don't cover much outside of Disney and Universal because that's where I feel I'm in my zone, as you'll learn about. But Arthur, he does it all. Any roller coaster or innovative new ride, any park, he's the go-to guy. As you'll hear, his story parallels the transitions journalism itself has faced, but the events he's experienced while on the job are nothing short of extraordinary. Here's Arthur. We should have seen each other a hundred times this year. I know. I miss seeing you, Carly. I miss seeing you too. This is good. We should do this more often. I know. Usually there's like a lot of themed desserts around and it's <laughs> it's much more festive than us being like in our little work holes. But but still, alas, <laughs> something to look forward to. Anyway, I I had to get you on the podcast. You are a dream guest because you know everything. You know the way I talk about you both to your face and behind your back is just like, he's the guy. He's the guy. You cannot talk about this job without talking to you. I and know, I realized- but you're, you're setting the bar too high, Carly. Come on now. <laughs> Not at all. The first time that we hung out, which I believe like the first time we hung out for a long, long time was in Shanghai. Yes, and it was. I remember waiting to go on the Tron coaster for our first time together, Tron Light Cycle Run. It's the journalism episode. I should give proper names. Uh, Holy moly, what a ride that is, huh? 
Yeah. And I remember waiting for hours because we were like, we have to be the first people on this ride. And I asked you, I was like, oh, you're a coaster guy. What's your favorite coaster? And you were like, wooden or not. And I was like, (laughs) oh, boy. (laughs) And for the next next 45 minutes, I let you know what my favorite coasters, plural, were, right? Yeah. Like, you truly know the ins and outs of these rides. And it's so funny because... My expertise is more like, here's how to plan the minutia of your trip. Here's like what entrance to go in, how to save 10 minutes here, how to like do all this fast pass stuff. And then you're like, oh, no, I know how rides work and I know every single detail. (laughs) Again, setting the bar too high, but not at all. It's oh, you know everything. It's very exciting to talk to you about rides and things. But I realized in putting this episode together, I don't even know how you got into this industry. Well, it's 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 a long story that I'll I'll try to make as as short as possible I guess, um, the, the the short answer is, is is that I've always been fascinated by theme parks and amusement parks and rides, and I don't know why there's there's nothing logical about it, um, but I guess things that uh, of which we're passionate there is really is no logic to it, but I do remember I, I've told this story often that among my very first memories. I've lived in, in Massachusetts my entire life, and as a little boy, um, my grandmother and my mother um, and others used to take me to this place called Revere Beach, which is still there. It's the first public beach in the, in the United States, and it was kind of the Boston, Boston's answer to Coney Island. Oh. And we everybody would go to the beach, and they would... Uh, arrange their beach chairs facing the ocean and people would be running in and out of the water and making sandcastles and so forth. My earliest memory is I would sit with my back to the water and I'd be looking at the amusements <laughs> and I'd, I'd look at the double, double Ferris wheel and the, the roller coaster and the carousel and I would be fascinated by it. And I'm talking about, you know, I was like two and a half, three, I don't know how old I was, but just I would sit there for hours mesmerized by this stuff. And I know that little kids love amusement parks, and there's nothing novel about that. But I would go to, when I got a little older, I got to go on the rides, and I would go to Revere Beach. I would go to the seaside parks in New England, which sadly, most of them are gone, including Revere Beach. I would go to theme parks and and other places, and I would love them, but I would take it to the next level. Um, as a little kid, I mean, I'm, I'm so old, Carly, and this, this is one of the things that <laughs> distinguishes the two of us. You're I'm not so, at all. Come on. <laughs> well, I'm so old. I remember Walt Disney actually being on television, on live TV, on broadcast television, talking about Disneyland. And I would be just, oh, my God, I have to go to this place. Um, but I took it to the next level. I, I I loved parks. I loved Walt Disney. I loved seeing him on television. I went to the library and I got books out, biographies of Walt Disney written for, you know, grade school kids. I wrote to the Disney company and got annual reports. And so I've just always been fascinated by parks. And as I got older, um, I, I went to school to be a, a teacher. When I did my student teaching, I decided this isn't for me. So I, <laughs> I, I did some other things. But one day I discovered that there was a magazine that was about to be published 
uh, called Theme Park Magazine. And I said, wow, I've got to get a copy of this. I had done a little bit of writing in high school and in college for, for my newspaper, I had, uh, for, for the school newspapers. I had also done some writing for some community newspapers. So I had a little bit of a background. Uh, and, and in the job that I had, I did, did quite a bit of writing as well. Um, so I hunted down who the publisher was of this magazine, found out that it was being published in southern New Hampshire, which wasn't that far from northern Massachusetts where I live, and was able to talk my way into a meeting with him and um, was able to then talk my way into writing the cover story for the debut issue of Theme Park Magazine, which was about the Back to the Future ride at Universal Studios Florida. Whoa! Ah! You wow! This is why you're the guy. See, because you're like, <laughs> I would like to be on magazine cover, please. And then they're like, Yes, come right in. Like you, you have the skill set. You know this stuff. So wait. So well, for your at, first... at the time, at the time, I didn't know anything. I just talked my way into this. And this was a very small potatoes publisher with a with a very very modest magazine. And at, at that point, I had the bug. I mean, I loved doing that. I still had my full-time job and I was just doing this thing on the side, but I said, I've got to continue doing this. And I figured out that there was such a thing as newspaper columns. Um, I, we, we subscribed to the Boston Globe and I would see all these national uh, columns. And I thought, why don't I start my own column about theme parks? And that's what I did. I started a theme, uh, a column called What's the Attraction? And I sold it to... I like that. <laughs> I sold it to newspapers across the country when newspapers used to exist across the country. And, <laughs> and so, when they had money to pay for things. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So I was in the Staten Island Advance. I was in the Denver Post. I was in uh, the Syracuse Herald American. I was in these newspapers all across the country. And one by one, this is in the 1990s, even back then, newspapers started contracting and budgets started contracting. And one by one, they let me go until it got to the point that I actually wrote one of my columns and nobody ended up running it. And I said, well, this is insane. I'm just spinning my wheels. I can't do this anymore. And at the same, at the very same time, I was about to walk away altogether and then I got this gig at about.com, which um, this is now 2002. This is sort of after the internet, original internet bubble had burst, but about.com was one of the, the survivors. And I became what was known as the theme parks guide, G-U-I-D-E, at about.com in 2002. And that's when my online journalism career kind of took off. And in 2002, that's, it's still sort of the early days of the internet. Um, and so I, I um, am still with um, what is no longer known as about.com. It kind of morphed into other things, but I still write for what is now known as Trip Savvy. And so I, I, I'm still writing about parks and attractions and the industry uh, for Trip Savvy. And you still got that Twitter handle. <laughs> Uh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. About theme parks. Exactly. That's yeah, where it comes there's, from. There's a real Twitter power play among like people who cover theme parks where like some people were clearly there very early and have all that's of right. the right handles. That's and then the right. rest of us are just like cramming in letters trying to make things work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, do you remember your first ever like press trip, like your first assignment covering a theme park? And if so, what was it like and what ride was it? 
Well, I do remember the first assignment. It was um, at Bush Gardens, Williamsburg. They were debuting a coaster called Drakenfire, D-R-A-C-H-E-N, that no longer is there. Um, and it was wonderful, and I really enjoyed it. Um, it wasn't really a press event so much as kind of an arranged trip. It was just it was just me going there to to cover this this new roller coaster that was debuting. The first major event that I went to, um, and and it's easy to date this because it, it was Walt Disney World's 25th anniversary. So that was 25 years ago because we're right on the cusp of, of uh, Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary. And to this day, I have to say, in the 25 intervening years, I've been on gazillions of press events, many of them with you, Carly. I know, and, you're my favorite. <laughs> and many of them have been wonderful, but I don't think anything compares to the Walt Disney World 25th anniversary event. It was phenomenal. And I don't think we'll ever see anything like that again. Arthur, literally tell me everything right now. <laughs> well, to, to start with, there were 10,000 journalists at this event. <laughs> and I'm not making that up. That's not hyperbole. There were 10,000 journalists from all over the world. I met people from Eastern Europe. I met people from Australia. It was just insane. What? Now, get a load of this, Carly. I know this sounds crazy, but... Um, they wanted to have an event where they would have all 10,000 journalists plus invited guests in one place so that Michael Eisner, who was the CEO at the time, could address them. And there was no place on, uh, on campus at, at Walt Disney World, I guess, to accommodate that large of a crowd. So Walt Disney World loaded 10,000 journalists onto buses and they shuttled them to uh, downtown Orlando to the arena. Uh, the sports arena in downtown Orlando. This was um, a, a military-grade operation. I've never seen anything like this in my life. We're literally talking about 10,000 people at once getting on a, a caravan of buses. They had Florida State Police lining I-4, blocking every entrance and exit ramp so that this bus cavalcade could make its way from Walt Disney World to downtown Orlando. It was, it was the craziest thing I've ever seen. And, and as an aside, I remember going to the arena and I realized I forgot my credentials, even oh though I had God. come off the bus and they wouldn't let me in. So I had to go to the will call window to, to get new credentials. And in front of me in line waiting to get his credentials was John Denver, the folk singer, who you may, may not know, but I guess you know who that is. <laughs> Yeah, so it, it, it was just crazy. It was crazy. It, it was a wonderful event. One more thing I want to tell you about this this 25th anniversary. I, I, want, to, I want to know every detail. I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> this is unbelievable to me. Well, unlike the events that Disney stages now, for one thing, the, the numbers are much smaller. And, and as you know, usually they'll corral us into one area of, of a park and they'll have uh, food stations set up and Literally, with 10,000 people, they just shut entire parks down and let us have free reign of the park. And there were food stations everywhere. And I mean, we went to Epcot, and it was kind of like uh, the food, you know, the Food and Wine Festival. There were just stations throughout the entire park. And I remember I wandered into, I think it was one of the intervention wings, and there was hardly anybody in there. 
but I just wandered in. It was open. And at the time, one of the exhibits had some kind of an attraction where you had to um, go into a room and, and there was some sort of presentation. Well, the door was open. It would normally, you know, be closed and, and, and they'd let you in when it was your appointed time, but it was open. And I wandered into this room and inside this room was the biggest mountain of chocolate I've ever seen in my life. It was just like, like, like the Disney World chefs went insane decorating this room with just, just oodles and oodles of chocolate and goodies and, and desserts. And there was nobody in there because there were 10,000 people spread out throughout Epcot and the rest of the park. It was me and my wife and this mountain of chocolate in a room all by ourselves in Epcot. It was what? the nuttiest thing I'd ever seen. It was just what? crazy. What? <laughs> <laughs> what? I know. It sounds crazy, but it's true. I, uh, I mean, I am just filled with so many emotions. Many of them are regret for not being born earlier. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. I was going to ask you what the wildest experience you've had covering like a theme park or a ride opening was, but I, I don't imagine anything would top that. Well, as I said, to this day, that's the event that remains most memorable, perhaps. But there have been so many. And Shanghai was certainly one of them. I mean, that was a real treat. As you know, we were part of a very small contingent from the U.S., a very small contingent of journalists that were invited to attend the opening. And, and I felt very honored. And um, I was just blown away, as I'm sure you were, by, by Shanghai Disneyland. It was just just amazing. As, as we just said, the Tron coaster is, oh my goodness, what a ride. And then Pirates, you know, the, the, the Pirates of the Caribbean, their, their version of it is, I believe, I think I've gone on the record and said this, I think that's my favorite theme park attraction in the world. It's just so phenomenal. Arthur, I will never forget the way you looked at me when I was like, I really liked it, but it's not my personal favorite. And you <laughs> looked at me with such shock and disappointment. <laughs> it was like I had, I had like confessed a terrible secret and you were like, at one point in my life, I respected you, but no more. <laughs> no, no, it's it's totally subjective, and I get that. But you have to admit, it was pretty mind-boggling. Oh, it's it's fantastic. But you, I'm more of a challenge trails person. I'm more of a how, like, I understand that everything there is a bit of how did they do this. But to me, I'm more like, how are they letting me climb across a waterfall right now? And how did legal clear this? <laughs> to me, that is more of an impressive feat. Pirates is right under it. But the fact that you were just in a harness dangling 25 feet off the ground seems weirder. <laughs> okay, I'll let you have that one. Just personal preference. <laughs> yeah, Shanghai was wild i we're gonna talk about it on a different episode but it it was for me it was the first time i'd been to a full park opening because i'm very new at this comparatively and so it was the only time i've ever shown up and been like every single thing here is new not not a land not a ride everything but i assume in you've covered many brand new th theme park or amusement park openings I wouldn't say many but but a few um one of the more memorable ones was hard rock park in Myrtle Beach, uh, South Carolina, which uh, again, sadly, no longer exists. Um, I was very intrigued by that because um, I had been following its development 
and reporting about it as it was being constructed. I got a chance to visit before it was finished. Then I got a chance to visit right before it opened. Then I got to go to the grand opening. I thought this place was wonderful. And it was um, an incredible disappointment to me, and certainly to, I'm sure to the investors and the people who who uh, who, who ran it that it it, fa- it it didn't even make it through one season. It was it was just incredible. Unfortunately, it opened in 2008 when the economy just fell apart, and there were many other reasons why it it didn't uh, didn't succeed. Um, but that that was kind of amazing to to be there from the beginning and to watch that uh, watch it being built and and then watch it being opened. Uh, another memorable one was Islands of Adventure. I I, I got to follow that one as well, um, and really the expansion of Universal Studios Florida into what is now known as Universal Orlando with the addition of the hotels and City Walk and everything. That that was quite amazing to to watch and to report about. You have followed rides from, you know, inception, announcement, all the way to when they open. What is that experience like? Because I will be honest, when they are talking about the ins and outs of coasters, especially for parks outside of Disney and Universal, I don't really know what's going on. But I know that you know all that stuff. So what's it like to, you know, talk to the people who make it and invent it and then follow the process all the way along? It's pretty wonderful. And and again, you know, as I said at the top, I've always been fascinated by this. I've always been passionate about it. I don't know why I just am. And so to have this kind of front row seat to the industry has been just a joy. I still kind of approach it with with, with a child's wonder and, and, you know, with wide-eyed enthusiasm. Um, And um, I'll give you one example there is a wonderful roller coaster manufacturer called Rocky Mountain Construction that has turned the uh, industry upside down. Um, they're best known for taking aging, aging wooden coasters that have become incredibly rough and normally would have been torn down. Uh, instead, this company comes in, they retain the wooden structure of the wooden coasters, they rip out the tracks. And they put in steel tracks and create what is known as a hybrid wooden steel roller coaster. And but the tracks aren't um, typical tubular steel tracks. There, there are these the, these these I-shaped tracks, this I-beam track, um, which makes them unbelievably smooth. So the contrast between what had been this insanely rough ride to this incredibly smooth ride that retains the DNA of the original classic wooden coaster is is just amazing. And they've done this for a number of rides uh, throughout the world. Um, but a couple of years, a few years ago, they came up with another development um, called this, the single rail coaster. Um, so they, instead of having two tracks, like most roller coasters do, they've invented um, what they call this, the, the Raptor track, which is this uh, wide, but not very wide, kind of monorail track that the coaster train sits on. And because they don't have to worry about um, getting the left and the right track sort of in sync, there's only one track, that enables them to create a very smooth ride because there's 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 nothing that's out of sync. But also it enables them to create a ride that has um, incredible elements that kind of whip you around very quickly. And they're able to be extremely nimble because of this 
the single track configuration. So the very first one that opened um, is Wonder Woman Golden Lasso at Six Flags Fiesta, Texas. And um, I did get to speak with the folks from uh, Rocky Mountain Construction as they were developing this thing and the folks from Six Flags as they were developing it. And then I had the honor of being the very first person outside of Six Flags to ride the ride the ride and then write about it, which was such a treat. Um, and, and as an added bonus, after I got off Wonder Woman Golden Lasso Coaster, which, by the way, is fabulous, um, the, the park was not open that day. It was just me in there riding this, this coaster. And then um, I got, um, they, they took me over to Iron Rattler, which is one of those coasters that Rocky Mountain Construction converted into a hybrid wooden steel coaster. And the president of the park knows that I love that coaster. They opened it just for me that day, and, and the two of us got to ride on, take a ride on Iron Rattler, which, which I got the biggest kick out of. Um, so so that, was, that was a real treat. Okay, I, I need people to know that this is not normal. Like this does not, <laughs> this does not happen. This does not happen. Like never, never. Wow. Well, Sometimes it happens. Oh, I guess when you're you, when you're me, they're like, get out of here. <laughs> like, go get a muffin and go home. Oh, my gosh. Have you ever been like at to a, a test before it opens? Like, have you gone to any of the places where they manufacture them? Have you been in any of the like simulations or anything like that? Well, you and I got to go to Imagineering as they oh, were. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So we, we could talk about that together. So I, I've been to Imagineering a, a, a few times, not many, but a few times as they had attractions in development. I got to see Toy Story Mania as it was being developed and got to got to shoot the targets and everything in a, in a sort of a simulation at, at Imagineering. Um, but then you and I got to see some of the um attractions at galaxy's edge as they were under development as well so yes i have had that that opportunity and and um and it's it's again you know i i kind of approach it from two different directions i put on my reporter's hat and i'm diligently taking notes and recording interviews and taking photos and all the kind of stuff that any any report any journalist would do but you know, inside I'm this little kid saying, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm here. I get to see I get to see, you know, this this Toy Story mania before anybody else gets to see it and get to get to try it out. So um, there, there's there's kind of uh, there's kind of the, the little boy in me that's competing with the with the journalist all the time. Yes, there's there's definitely some of us that have a better poker face than others. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the like Robert Niles is always very serious. Like you can't you can't crack him. And then I am a full kid and then like a little bit of journalist where I present as child, but then I'll like secretly actually be writing a story. And then so afterward, I've seen it come out in you after we see some stuff where you're like, that was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I remain one of the ultimate fans, and I know you are too, Carly. And 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 I think you probably would agree. I know that you would agree with me that we're extremely fortunate that we get to do what we do. I can't believe it's a job. I can't believe I ended up in this field because I never expected it. It's truly a blessing. Yeah. And and what I really enjoy about you and I enjoy about your podcast is you bring that enthusiasm and you bring that sort of, you know, that 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 joy to your writing and to your podcast and to everything you do. And you have a very unique voice and um and, and, and clearly a passion for for it. And and I think that that makes 
uh, that makes you great. Oh my gosh, you're too nice. I just, I'm, I am very enthusiastic. I just, I like to have fun, and it's rare to do as an adult. It's very hard to find ways to just have fun without being like, oh, I'm here for a child. But you can purely have your own fun at a park, and I love it so much. Really, that's one of the things that's great about amusement parks and theme parks. Even if you're not a journalist getting to do what we do, it's an opportunity for adults to, where else can you go and giggle and scream your head off? And it's perfectly socially acceptable. Um, and, and go with your kids or even not, not with your kids and just giggle like you're, you know, like you're five or six years old and eat ice cream and eat cotton candy and eat churros. And it's, it's socially acceptable to be a little kid and have just pure joy. And that's one of the things that I love about parks. Me too. And speaking of screaming, I wanted to ask you and I forgot, is there a ride that scares you? Because you've done it all. And like, you know, after a while, I can't imagine you're scared to do some of the things that scare me. But are there any coasters that you've been on where you're like, oh, no. Well, I have to say, when I first started this, this is going back to the early 90s. Um, I was not really a huge roller coaster fan. I was more of a fan of... Um, you know, the story-based dark rides like Pirates of the Caribbean and Haunted Mansion. Those are the things that I really, really loved. I enjoy coasters, but the the really big, crazy ones, I would tend to shy away from. Through the years, I've grown to love them. And at this point, virtually nothing <laughs> scares me any, any longer. I'm more sort of fascinated by the physics and the design and the creativity of the designers there is one ride, however, and I don't know if you've been on this. It's in your neck of the woods now, Carly. It's it's X two. It's Six Flags Magic Mountain. Have you been on that? No, I I think I, I think I emailed you about this a few years ago. That I started going on big coasters, and then I started feeling like I was going to pass out. And then I went to my doctor, and she's like, "Stop, please." So I only went to Magic Mountain once in my life, and I took a beta blocker because she's like, "This might help," and I was real loopy and had to leave. So I did not have the opportunity to go on that ride. Yeah, yeah. Well, X two um, is is just. It's just so insane. In fact, it's it's um, other designers have attempted to sort of duplicate the concept, um, but they've toned it down considerably. This is a ride. I don't know the stats off the top of my head, but it's somewhere close to 200 feet tall. Um, and, and it hits, I don't know, 70 something odd miles an hour. But what's unusual about it is that the cars sit on either side of the track. Uh, so it's sort of like a wing coaster, and they can independently rotate forwards and backwards um, as the ride is going through, as the train is going, you know, following the course of the track. I mean, from the from the get go, this and, and you, you go up the lift hill backwards on your back as you are as you are sitting on either side of the track, so you can't even see what's coming ahead of you, and then. The first drop is not quite vertical, but pretty close to it. And then you start spinning around. You literally have no idea which end is up. And this thing just scares the hell out of me to this day. I've been on it a few times, but it gets me every time. And and so that that's one of the coasters that I find incredibly, um, just in, incredibly scary. Have you ever puked on a ride? Never. I, I am blessed with a cast iron stomach. I can still go on spinning rides, even though I'm 
well past, well into the throes of middle age. <laughs> um, I, I, I still go to the carnival and can go on the scrambler and go on different rides and I feel fine. Even wow. if I've had, you know, if I've had a sausage, onion and pepper sub, I'm still okay. Yeah, you have a real like Michael Phelps situation going on where you were just born blessed and ready for this job. I guess, I guess, yeah. I never got to tell you my 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 Disneyland 60th anniversary stories. I had some <gasps> some some me. great stuff there. Tell me. Yeah, should I? Oh, please. Um so many things happened at that event that it, it just is 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 another extremely memorable event. This is just a few years ago when when Di- when Disneyland celebrated its 60th anniversary. One thing is um I was in the courtyard at the Grand Californian Hotel and I was taking some notes and looking over my my notes and just doing a little bit of work. I was outside and this harried guy came running in. He looked all confused and disheveled and he was obviously looking for something and he turned around and it was Dick Van Dyke. And just to see Dick Van Dyke, he's probably like at that point, I don't know, in his late 80s or early 90s or something. And he said, I can't find my wife. I don't know where my wife is. And it was just so, so, such an odd encounter. But and then he just kind of took off. And th- that was just one of many memorable moments for, from the event. I also um, had the um, the pleasure of speaking with Tom Staggs, who was the head of the Disney Parks Division at the time um, in Walt's apartment above the fire station. And I had never been up there before. So that was that was really neat. Um, and I got to interview uh, Neil Patrick Harris, who was hosting the special edition of World of Color uh, at the time. So, so I got to interview him. Um, but the coolest thing that happened is um, my one of the stories that I wrote, I wanted to interview people who had a special connection to Disneyland and to have them share with me and, and with the readers um, what 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 it is that they loved about Disneyland, what was special to Disneyland about them. Um, and I noticed as I was walking through Disney California Adventure that Bob Gurr, the Imagineer Bob Gurr, who's a legendary uh, gentleman, he, he um, goes back to the days of, of, he worked directly with Walt Disney. He um, worked on um, great moments with Mr. Lincoln for the New York World's Fair. He worked on literally all of the vehicles um, in the early days of Disneyland, the the monorail and uh, the vehicles for the Haunted Mansion, I believe he had something to do with. But anyways, I, I saw him there. I had never met him before. And I wanted to ask him, you know, what was his connection to Disneyland for this article that I was writing? And um, I introduced myself and I started to um, started to ask my question. And then he said to me, um, you seem like this is something that is really important to you. You're not just, you're not just like some guy on assignment from USA Today writing about this. <laughs> I, I can tell that you know what you're talking about. Why don't we go and sit down and we'll have a lengthy conversation, which was a thrill for me. So he took me into the 1901 lounge, which is the private lounge. It's sort of the Disney California's adventure Disney California Adventures version of Club 33. And um, we sat down and we had this lovely conversation. And at the end, he took me around and showed me all these photos that lined the wall. And these these vintage photos of Walt Disney from the very early days. And he 
he, he explained to me what was going on. I mean, he, this, this guy was a witness to history um, and, and such an, an energetic, wonderful guy, even though he's quite advanced in years. So it, it was just, just a thrilling, uh, a thrill to meet him and a thrill to talk with him. And so many wonderful things happened at that event. That was, that was one of the, the highlights, I think, of my, my uh, journalist career. Wow, that is incredible that you're so good at your job that he's like, come with me, be my friend. (laughs) (laughs) I got a big kick out of it. Arthur Levine's latest work can be found primarily at USA Today and Trip Savvy. Before we speak to some other cool people, I want to get into the nitty gritty of how we do the job. In terms of interviews, I vary my style, but I prefer to keep it very casual and friendly and loose. My goal is always to make an interview feel like a conversation, even if I'm the only one asking the questions. But every moment throughout, I really gauge my tone and adjust for what I think is the best way to get the answer I need out of someone who may or may not want to give it to me. I tend to keep my questions tighter and more specific when talking to chefs or anyone leading a food and beverage seminar and loosen them up when it's someone who I feel will be most successful with a conversational tone. A lot of my previous reporting centered around an individual with something to promote. And while you want some fun quotes from a lead singer of a band you're talking to when it's about their new album or tour, that flexibility is rarely there when you're talking to and about a company. We've all seen how fans dissect every single word that comes out of these parks, specifically the Mouse House, and people we interview are generally going to give you somewhat of a pre-approved answer. And while a lot of interviews I've done before Parks drive you to get someone to open up, for them to be honest and divulge a detail about themselves, one that can often become the through line of a profile you're writing, that just doesn't happen when it comes to theme park interviews. You may be speaking to some of the most creative minds in design, but you're not focusing on them. You're focusing on what they and a large group of people have created. And it's just not really the same situation. There's not that flexibility, which makes it difficult to report something unique on these parks. Another challenge also happens to be what many of us love theme parks for in the first place. Story. It can sometimes be difficult when, say, discussing Pandora, the world of Avatar, to clarify that you're not talking about how Alpha Centauri expeditions wound up on the Valley of Moara, but how parts of that theme park land were physically built. It's definitely a unique beat to be on, and no one knows that better than the Orlando Sentinel's Gabrielle Russin. As one of the few theme park-focused tourism reporters working full-time for a newspaper, Dwayne Bevel, who also works at the Sentinel, and Brady McDonald at the Orange County Register are others, she covers the ins and outs of all things Disney, Universal, and beyond in her day-to-day work. I adore Gabrielle. I've made that very clear both publicly and personally to her face whenever I see her. But what I admire about her the most is her ability to do such good work so quickly. I'll never forget at the opening for Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure. We were all sitting and waiting in the queue for the ride to reopen since we were held for weather. And Gabrielle was in the corner churning out a story in the dark on the ground. It was One of the more incredible things I've seen in my time as a reporter. 
It's it's why I'm always in awe of websites like The Diz and Disney Food Blog and All Years and Thrill Geek and Laughing Place and so many others. People in this line of work really know how to get information out correctly and quickly. I regularly am at an event getting text messages of something that's in front of me. It will be a photo in my group chat of a food item or an announcement that was just made that I haven't even been able to post yet. And there it is in my camera, making me feel like someone is spying on me in real time. Now, on top of her high-level efficiency, Gabrielle is putting out stories that are imperative and that we need to read. She recently wrote about a Central Florida Union's drive-up food bank whose line stretched two miles long and has done unbelievable investigative work about theme park injuries, particularly a multi-story deep dive into safety concerns with the slide at Universal's Volcano Bay. I highly recommend checking out every piece she's put forward on Volcano Bay It just keeps evolving, and there's more information coming out that she is digging up, and it's definitely worth a read. I'm so excited I was able to get her to talk on this episode, and I just couldn't contain my glee. I adore her. Anyway, here is Gabrielle Russin. I'm very nervous to interview you because you are such a good reporter that I'm like, oh, no. Oh, God, I have to ask you a question. I'm scared. Oh, whatever, girl, whatever. <laughs> um, I So I do not know how you wound up being this prominent theme park reporter. And I would love to know what took you on the journey to this. Oh, I you know, some days I don't know either. Uh, it's such a unique job when I tell people uh, I'm, a, I'm a beat reporter. I cover theme parks. There are just not many newspaper jobs like that in the country. Um, I've had a pretty straightforward career. I've covered a lot of government meetings and school board meetings. Um, but I just, I love to tell stories. And I got lucky. There was a, a the Disney reporter left at the paper and there was an opening and I kind of just went with it. Wow. And so you hadn't really covered theme parks until you got the gig. Never. No, I'm more traditional covered universities and K through 12 education and county government. Uh, never, never had a theme park specialty. So I'm pretty what? traditional, main, you know, mainstream journalist, I would say. What has it been like to just be fully invested in all of this mania? You know, it's, it reminds me a lot of, I used to cover the university of central Florida, like one of the biggest schools in the country. And it was an institution. You trying to figure out what they're doing. Uh, some, you know, they're very image conscious. There's so many stories about students and teachers and professors. You know, there's so many stories out there. And I kind of just saw the same as Disney in the same way. You're trying to find out what's going on. There are all these deeper stories of humanity to tell. Uh, you know, kind of as straightforward as I could, I guess. Is there any one story you've reported that at this point has been your favorite? Uh, it's so hard. It's hard to tell because I'm, I'm just, whenever I'm writing a story, I'm so into that story at the moment. Um, it's like my little baby, but, yeah. um, but I've gotten to do such cool things. I've been to SeaWorld at 3am when they were feeding baby manatees. Oh. Um, you know, I've been to Magic Kingdom when it's empty before, or, you know, I've just told so many different kinds of stories. And gone to meet lots of different kinds of people that I would never otherwise get to meet. I don't know if it's my favorite, but I think it's really important. I wrote a story last year looking at how cast members are treated. Uh, I had gotten a, I found a police report where, um, you know, a tourist 
didn't have a fast pass to Tower of Terror, so she punched the cast member in the face and started pressing buttons on the console. Although, fortunately, it wasn't the elevator part of the ride, so, you know, everybody was safe. But it made me curious, like, how often do things like this happen? So I wanted to do a story just looking deeper into how people treat cast members. And I, I requested all the battery complaints with the sheriff's office for like 10 years and wrote a story last year just looking at all the times that someone's upset they didn't have a fast pass or they, they were told they couldn't put their stroller here or whatever and would yell at a cast member or grab them. And, uh, you know, it just kind of, kind of was indicative of the service industry of how people are treated. And that was a story I just felt was really important to tell. I don't think I read that one. That one somehow slipped by me. It's, it's a, it was tough to write. I, and I bet it's tough to read because all the different instances where, you know, people are just dehumanized. Even in that most magical place on earth, you know, it still happens. This is maybe a personal curiosity, but I have always been so blown away by your efficiency. And I would love to know how you, how you organized your notes, what your approach is to writing a story. I have no choice because I'm always on deadline and I just have to, I don't have time to have, um, you know, to, to, to get, to have writer's block. I have to just keep going. Um, and I'm, it's always super hectic because I'm writing like I have like five different stories going on at any one time because it takes time to figure out you know, if I want to tell a deeper story, who am I going to write about? And I got to get to build, uh, build trust and get them to, um, you know, set up interviews. It just takes time. And I'm so always juggling stories in different stages of the process. Um, and even now it's just, there's so much to write about. There's, you know, I feel like I'm covering history, a uh, historic moment with how terrible things are with the coronavirus and the economic impact. It's just, you know, it's it's overwhelming how much there is to write about right now. It's yeah, it's really interesting how the how wide the ranges of topics that you've been covering the last few months, because if you I mean, I'm sure you can relate. If you would have told me that I was reading your stories last year and there was a story about a food bank drive through, I'd be like theme parks. <laughs> but that's where we are. Yeah, I went out to a story. Uh, I think it was end of September. and. um you know, it, it was a, it was at the, one of the Disney uh, unions and it was the, the car line was two miles long. I mean, people had been out there since like 5 a.m., you know, waiting hours to get a free bag of groceries because our unemployment rate's the worst in the state right now. So it's uh, the, the suffering right now is it's it's pretty vivid and intense. Uh, I do want to talk about your Universal series because you have really been the go-to person for everything happening with Volcano Bay. And I'd, I'd love to know kind of how how that story ca not came across your desk, but kind of how you dove into that and found out so much information and have been able to tell people so many details that we would have not known otherwise. Oh, thanks. Uh, you know, I as a reporter, I just I kind of see what I do as, as a watchdog for, for what's happening at the theme parks. Cause when something bad happens, you know, Disney or universal, they're not going to tell us, they're not going to put a, it on their parks blog. Uh, they're very image conscious and very protective of, of, you know, what goes on there. And I, I check lawsuits every day. I make records requests regularly every week. And I saw a lawsuit last year and I wrote about it at the time about a, a gentleman that according to his lawsuit said that he was, um, you know, broke his neck and was paralyzed going down a slide at Volcano Bay. And uh, part of being a, a reporter is just, you know, being diligent, persistent and, and checking up on the records. And I found more records that showed 
you know, there had been a history of problems on the slide and, and Universal was very aware of it. Um, and it, it, it just kept going from there. There was a dispute between the ride manufacturer and Universal and, and an insurance company and it just kept spiraling. And um, it just was clear that how, when there's a serious injury at the park, the public doesn't really know what happens because of how our, uh, our self-reporting system is set up in Florida. Um, so I just thought it was a story it's important for the public to know. And what's your favorite type of story to write? I love stories that are just, I get to see something that I would never get to see otherwise or meet somebody that I would never uh, get to meet otherwise. You know, I wrote a story where I tagged along with a group of people that were trying to do the parkeology challenge where they ride every single ride in one day at Disney World. Um, so we had like a 19 hour day at the parks and it was so fun to write about what it was like to sprint from ride to ride and, and try to squeeze them all in, in one day. Um, you know, I've written some about some really interesting cast members. There was a, a Disney cast member who went to school full time and then worked full time and was a safari driver at animal kingdom. And just like the, she was this young 20 something, like how hard she was working to try and you know, make it and build a career for herself, I just thought was incredible. Wow. And when you're writing these type of, you know, big stories, profiles, do you, do you ever keep in touch with the people? Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. And, and I'm Facebook friends with some of them or I hear updates, you know, this is really sad. I wrote a story about Lynn. I think it was almost two years ago and I was doing a series on Disney fanatics, like the hardcore Disney fans. And Lynn had Disney stuff all over her house, had like 500 Mickey Mouse ears. It was insane. Every part of her house was decorated in Disney. She worked for Disney. She did, uh, she was a florist and did the bouquets for the weddings, the sweetest lady. And, you know, flash forward two years later, uh, during the coronavirus pandemic, she's furloughed. And I'm seeing on Facebook that she's selling all her Disney items piece by piece. And she sold everything and never got the call back to work and, and moved back to her, her hometown. So just seeing how people were before and then what's happened since, you know, when, when things are just really tough has been really hard. Oh, my gosh. And you're really the person who's bringing those stories to life. Oh, well, that's, that's nice of you to say. I'm, t- I'm trying to do my best. So as a theme parks reporter, what have you learned on the job? Well, I've only been covering theme parks for about, um, about three years. What I've really learned is just how loyal and sometimes intense um, the Disney fandom is. And it's wonderful and interesting to write about everybody that so closely follows what Disney World does. The little things like a new cupcake or a new, you know, a little change to the big things and the, and, the, and the new rides and just how closely people follow and care. Um, I don't think I was really aware of that before I started covering Disney. Um, and I also think I also wasn't really aware of just what Disney means to people. I've written several stories where, um, you know, someone has lost a family member and going back to Disney World, it is just like this healing process and had this special connection and these memories. Uh, and that's a, that's a special thing. I, you know, it's hard to really understand how, how meaningful Disney World is to people. How has reporting on theme parks changed since you began doing it? It's, I felt like I've gotten more comfortable writing about it and learning more what's out there. Um, you know, I've made, I make, I make a lot of records requests. And the more I learned about Disney and Reedy Creek, um, you know, a couple, when I was a little bit more into my beat, 
I would make requests for ride evacuation data at Reedy Creek Fire Department or things like that. I'm just learning about how the system works and what things are public that I could ask for. Um, so that's one thing, just how I was kind of learn more. Um, but it's just changed a lot right now with what I was writing a year or two years ago versus right now and the crowds and the imp financial impact. And, um, you know, it just seemed like everything was bigger and bigger every, you know, the new, you know, everything was so huge yes. and all the crowds packed in and, and how much could Disney charge? Cause they're so crowded. And, you know, that story feels really far away right now in October, 2020. And it wasn't even that long ago. I know, I know. Is there any aspect of your job that people who aren't familiar with the ins and outs of writing about theme parks would be surprised by? It's a lot of work. It's a lot of public records requests. It's it's being persistent, making reminding the the governments you reminding the entities that you put your requests in to follow up. And it's um, it's a lot of digging. And sometimes you might not find anything. And then sometimes you find a really powerful story you didn't expect to find. So it's, it's just a lot of work and it's a lot of digging and sometimes it pays off. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you find one story and it'll lead to a whole bunch that you didn't expect. One of the biggest questions that I'm ever asked is how to get invited to these events in the first place. This question often comes from people who are influencers or have a YouTube channel or a very cool website, but reporters are actually in an entirely different breakdown from everyone else. Whereas those people I just mentioned are invited for work they've done for themselves, by themselves. We're attending for a magazine or a website and not on our own accord. My access isn't because I'm Carly, it's because I'm Carly reporting for sci-fi. But from my experience, it is always a don't call us, we'll call you situation. Disney will find you if you're doing good work. Even with professional writing, I was only put in touch with Disney Parks people after I'd written about the parks for a few months and they happened to reach out, which I understand may be tough depending on what you do in your career, but that is personally what I've experienced. A lot of people see what our cameras capture at events, but rarely what's happening behind the scenes. Each press event is a mix of assigned interviews, panels, and information-collecting stations, like merchandise and seasonal food that ties into the reason you're there, along with a set time frame for experiencing the new ride or attraction. With so much going on at once at one of these, it's really important to stay organized, which is not my strong suit. I've always brought a notebook and tape recorder and my iPhone, but I'll typically wait until after the event, well after, to organize my notes down to the detail, squirreling away tips and ride secrets and other observations into files for if I'm commissioned for something down the road where I need those. Day of, though, I'm flying by the seat of my pants. I'd like to pretend otherwise, but my note-taking is actually most often done through, oh, this is embarrassing, a long thread of emails sent to myself that I plop into a Google Doc later, organize by category, and work from there. It's a mess, but for me, it works. I asked a few of my theme park reporter friends how they get it done, and was surprised by how their answers were way different than mine. Deanne Revel, who we'll hear from shortly, is all about paper. Considering herself somewhat old school, she prints out everything, highlighting takeaways she wants to focus on. Because I'm typically filing a story in real time when I'm traveling, she explains to me, that often means I'm sitting on my hotel bed with a semicircle of crumbled up paper divided into stacks of background info, quotes, etc. The first time my wife went on a press trip with me, she said my setup looked like a scene from a forensic science show. 
Brooke McDonald, another reporter friend, says she tends to cover events and openings for a few different outlets with wildly different audiences. So she keeps her notes in her notes app on her phone in three different sections, one for families, one for travel industry, and another for fan-focused websites. I usually filter any advanced research and interview questions into these three categories too, she told me, so I can add notes or questions as they arise through the day and can keep it all straight. A much better method than mine. And Valerie Marino, who you heard from before, prefers to take notes in an actual notebook. I always bring a notebook with me in case I unexpectedly wind up doing something where phones aren't allowed, which happens more than you'd think, especially when you're at a top secret land preview event. They're rare as a surprise within a general event, but sometimes you'll be invited with a really tiny group of people to a park for a preview of a land or a space that no one else has seen or reported on yet. I've had the privilege of touring three under construction lands, and it's incredible to see the midway point between ideation and actuality. I love being able to take those details I learned from those top secret previews and sharing them with fans who are excitedly looking forward to something like Avengers Campus. But getting that story is not so easy, and it is not cute. Because you can't have a phone, which is where I like to take all my notes. Sometimes this means being among the first to walk the queue for Rise of the Resistance and mumbling really embarrassing rock details into a tape recorder out loud. Sometimes it means taking shorthand quotes and hoping for the best. And then there's the safety uniform. For hard hat tours of a land or attraction that's under construction, Safety comes first, so you have to wear long pants and a long shirt in the blazing sun and bring your own closed-toed boots. Now, I live in Southern California, so I have one pair, and they never pass the safety test. So every time I'm left waddling around in some borrowed men's construction boots, safety goggles over my own glasses, a hard hat on, and gloves, trying to write down notes with a pen in a notepad with these large cartoon hands, and it's utterly ridiculous. I like to wear overalls if I can or something to stick in my pocket so I can record hands-free and have a place to put objects. But sometimes you're just left with audio you have to blast at full volume to transcribe and a lot of squiggles you hope make sense later. Todd Martins, who reports on Disney Parks for the LA Times, seems to handle these situations very well. And an Avengers Campus walkthrough that we both attended, where phones weren't allowed, he told me he was sketching everything, which to anyone else would look like random drawings from a cat, but to me convey texture of a brick. Wow, maybe I should work on my penmanship. We all sort of have our strengths and specialties, and Deanne Revel knows so much about Disney, but also knows a lot about Harry Potter. When I have to fact check little things for Wizarding World of Harry Potter and Universal theme parks, I'm hitting up our group chat, no doubt. Deanne and I both freelance for a wide spread of different audiences, some who don't visit the parks that often or have no idea a themed land is even opening, while also needing to accommodate anyone who may know the ins and outs of Disney World and just wants to hear about what the secret artifacts are on the second floor of Doc Ondar's. My personal favorite, by the way, the golden bust of Jar Jar Binks. So Deanne and I get into it, discussing what it's really like to cover a theme park opening when everything is brand new, how our brains have been overcome by Wizarding World factoids, and share in the fun and occasional stress of having the weirdest, best job in the world. (laughs) 
So how did you get started even reporting about theme parks? Yeah, so I, I'm i a former nine-to-fiver. I worked my way up to managing editor of TravelChannel.com. And I, I joke that I, the story I always tell is that I felt like Charlie's Angels, but like I was Charlie trapped in the box. And my writers and photographers were the angels, right? Like they're they're going out having these adventures, telling these stories. And I just sit in my little cubicle and file the stories when they come in, um, which is great. But I think I ultimately wanted to be on the other side of the story. And so I made the leap to freelance and started just general travel. And I'm an angel now and I go out and have these adventures of my own. And, um, you know, I think given the audiences that I write for, it was a lot of family travel which ultimately means a lot of theme park content. And I just kind of kept like turning left, turning left, turning left, getting to this beat of solely theme parks and themed entertainment. And you've been a Harry Potter fan forever, I believe. Since, forever. Since before the series even existed, probably. <laughs> I'm just, I'm a big fan of magic. It, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I love Harry Potter. You know, I love Star Wars because Jedi's are space wizards. I now love Marvel because Doctor Strange is not a superhero. He's a wizard. I had no idea that it was it was wizard-based love. When I was a kid, I anything like YA fantasy fiction that I could get my hands on, like I one of the first series that I read was The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, the Percy Jackson series, Artemis Fowl. I mean, any anything that had to do with supernatural, magic, anything I'm a fan of. Is there any story that sticks out most to you, like uh, a new attraction or um, anything in your global travels that you're like, this was what I've lived to do? Probably the opening of Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure. Because... Cur- curious word in that name. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> because I, it was one of the first stories that I really got to follow from beginning to end. Um, so, you know, I was part of a group of journalists that had an exclusive on the details um, before it opened and then I got to see it once it was open and I think for me it was so much more than covering a roller coaster because the extent of design in just the ride queue I feel like when, when I stepped into the ride queue I was like this is my moment because I know Harry Potter more than any other reporter here. And I just like was picking up on all of these different design hidden gems in the queue. And it just felt like, okay, yeah, like I belong in this crowd because I I never, I don't like saying that I'm an expert on something, but, but it felt like, yeah, I'm an expert on finding hidden gems in a roller coaster line. I uh, are there any of them that stand out to you is like no one else saw this but immediately I knew yeah um one of the first chambers that you walk into through the the castle ruins there are a lot of um faded painted things on the wall 
And there's like some really faded text that is the quote from the sorting hat about Ravenclaws, which I am a very proud Ravenclaw. And I walked in and this text is so small, but I immediately was like, there it is. There it is. Ravenclaw. Ravenclaw. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's like the whole queue is speaking to you. It was. It was. Uh, And I think something you bring up is some is a is. I think what you brought up is something that people probably don't realize is that sometimes we do get information in advance and sometimes we don't. Yes. (laughs) And so like both can be very stressful. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's interesting to sit on secret information. You know, it's um, I think it is kind of a privilege of just any news reporter that comes with the job. And then the flip side is not knowing and having to piece together something to help your readers figure it out. Absolutely. And a lot of times that involves having only part of the picture and just trying to talk to everyone you physically can (laughs) to fill out the rest of the shadow. Is there any story that you've had to report that Pro, like kind of just provided a difficult challenge or one that you had to work so much harder on than you had for other stories? Yeah, I, I don't know if I would say it was hard, but it was. So a lot of the things that I cover for Disney parks or Universal parks, it comes from stories that I am knowledgeable about. So, you know, like if I walk into Star Wars Galaxy's Edge for the first time, I am familiar with the canon of Star Wars, and I can pick up on these references that are hidden. But covering Animal Kingdom's opening of Pandora was very different for me. Because, yeah, I had seen the Avatar movie, but (laughs) I would not say I was, like, versed on the Banshee and the, you know plant matter of this alien world and it it was a lot of new very fast because the you know to their credit the cast members in Pandora I mean they never break character and it came with this whole list of vocabulary and vernacular that we just quickly had to brush up on you know as visitors to this planet and I think it ultimately kind of worked out because for for that coverage, there were so many reporters there that were from the movie and film industry. And so they're looking at it in the context of Avatar, the movie. But for me, I just felt like I got dropped on this alien planet. So I focused on the design of the plants that glow in the dark at night and like what happens if you like rub this plant in a funny place it's gonna like spew water all over like strangers in the distance you know and so it kind of it was a very different take but I it was more challenging for sure because you know when I walk into Diagon Alley I know exactly where I am. It's so interesting too because it, it there is a new language there was literally a person standing there teaching you the language of the Navi, I believe, from what I remember. (laughs) And you have to learn that language and dissect it and explain it to your readers in a very short amount of time. Yeah. And and distill it to readers. I mean, even covering Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, there, there is 
a new set of terms. I mean, just, you know, referring to your cell phone as a data pad. Um, it, there's a lot of information that I think it's not so new to us because we've either seen the information for months and months before we cover the event or we're familiar with the stories, but then you have to take a lot of information and distill it down into a 101 type guide sometimes for an outlet or an audience that they may not know the stories. Like this is their first experience with these characters, this land. And sometimes that can get entertaining. Oh, absolutely. What is your favorite part of the job? Honestly, walking, walking the parks, just, um, you know, I don't have to be on a ride. I don't have to be eating a new thing. For me, I love the design and just being dropped into another world. I think it, it goes back to just my love of magic and fantasy. I would be happy just walking laps around Epcot, you know, just being in those parks gives me such joy. And I love that my job, in a way, it's like, that's my office now. That's my playground. And it allows me to go as as often as I like. Do you have any secret writing spots within the parks? Secret writing spots? No, I prefer to hole up in my hotel when I write because I am a big fan of air conditioning. Mm, right, 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 right. <laughs> Florida, not always conducive. <laughs> uh, I always use the people mover as a place to send emails. Because <laughs> you're, you're also there alone, as I am, likely more than the regular person who doesn't live yes. in Florida. Because yes. uh, we are there a lot. And I just, I always find it fun to just hop on there alone and just send little emails out. Yeah. I, I have been known to pop my laptop open in the teacup chairs at the Disneyland <laughs> hotel lobby. Um, yes, I've seen this photo. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, my favorite place, which I shouldn't be talking about publicly, but who cares, is the third floor of the Grand Californian. There is this area <laughs> with truly the perfect desk setup. It feels a little like like a Hogwarts library situation. Oh. Yeah, because they have like the little lamp and the wooden chairs and the wooden desk and it's great, but you're technically not supposed to be there unless you're staying at the hotel and they will kick you out because I have found that out the hard way. But it is, oh, it is the ideal workspace. And if someone's playing the piano, oh my God, what a dream. What is the coolest or most exclusive thing you've experienced as part of your job? Ooh, I've, I've been able to go backstage and, you know, see things that I think most guests aren't able to. For me, I think the coolest thing that I have done any, for any story related to theme parks is last year, I was able to go to the Cirque du Soleil headquarters in Montreal to see a sneak preview of the Disney Cirque du Soleil collaboration show Drawn to Life, um, which was supposed to premiere at Disney Springs this year. And it was fascinating. And it was such a small group because it was me and a writer from D23, Disney's fan club magazine. So because it was just two of us, after we got to see performers do their thing, they took us around the headquarters and we got to walk through the costume department and the gym where the 
um, artists perform and we got to even try on a couple of Cirque du Soleil costumes, <laughs> which I think in that moment, I was like, you know, this is a day that it that something like this does not happen. And I kind of had to pinch myself like on the plane home, like, did the last 36 hours actually happen? I saw your coverage from that and it looked so cool because especially with something like that, it's it's so unbelievable what Cirque du Soleil does. So to see them create that and to go behind the scenes is extraordinary. It was, yes. And there I think there were things that couldn't be announced at that time, but I remember seeing a panel that was used in the set design. And at that point, they weren't talking really about what Disney material had been confirmed or not for the show. But I remember seeing a panel from, and I know that that's exactly what it is. It was the ballroom from Beauty and the Beast. And just seeing that panel like propped up on a wall, like in the back of their gym, I was like, I know, I know that's Beauty and the Beast. I don't, and don't. I don't think they've commented on that publicly yet. No, I don't think so. But it, you know, and I have photos, and I it it is Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> I love it. Okay, I've totally been in the same situation where they let you into like a very specific space. Um, I'm specifically thinking of any tour I've done at Walt Disney Imagineering. Everything is black curtains, so you can't see in. But they let you into one space, and of course, I have the same bug you do, where I'm looking around the room, being like, "What? What am I not supposed to know?" And I look <laughs> everywhere, and sometimes you see stuff. And it's wild because, of course, just like with Harry Potter, you know what that is and you know that that's the iconic scene from that film. Hello, hello, hello. A little friendly warning that there are some spoilers for Rise of the Resistance and Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure up ahead. If that's a problem for you, if you're holding out because you haven't been on either attraction, no worries. Just skip forward about one minute and you'll be completely in the clear. How many times do you ride a ride before you review it? I don't know if I've ever asked another reporter this. Twice. Really? And and that's it. Yeah. The first time I, and I try, unless, unless it's a story that I have to write, but um, I try not to know what's going to happen. I don't want to see spoilers. Uh, I'm on, on the big stuff. I mean, obviously top of mind, I know what it's about, but when I go in, I don't want to know the specifics because there is such a joy of being surprised, like for Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure, which is such a mouthful. But going into it, I knew about some of the launch speeds. I knew the story. I did not know that you get dropped from a coaster track to a coaster track. And I will never forget that moment because it it is technology that you haven't seen in the States. And it's just it took me by surprise. The same thing, Rise of the Resistance. You know, the fact that you are being launched up instead of dropped down took me by surprise. And I didn't know that going into it. And then the second time, you know, usually, and it's back to back, because when we're at these events, um, you know, it's like you get your chance now or you don't get a chance. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I write it again and the second time is when I'm looking at, okay, what is the weight experience like? What is the load experience like? I'm thinking about different readers. Like if I am writing for 
wheelchair users, like how, how, what are the logistics like? And what, you know, how long is the ride, all the mechanics of it. And so I think after that, I have like my artistic ride through, I have my logistical ride through, and then I back away and try to start making notes because I think when I just start writing something back to back to back to back to back, it takes the magic out of it. That absolutely makes sense. For me. Yeah. Do you also feel like with social media, you have to know more answers to questions because you'll be getting them directly? They won't just be comments on a website? Yes. Um, And I think especially covering something new, those those answers evolve. They change. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I remember for Hagrid's um, Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure. <laughs> say that three times fast. I love that we like, y- you can't <clears throat> not say the full name. It's been so ingrained in you. Yeah, no, I'm not going to abbreviate that. Um, <laughs> there, there was a way to check the weight um, for riders. There is a car that is in the last room before you board and in the very beginning, they were checking people, like having you sit in it and check. And then they went away with that. And then because um, the loader belt, it moves like Haunted Mansion. And so I guess they thought, well, we're not going to check people then. We'll check them before. And it it changed. And, you know, you, sometimes you report what you see in real time. And then you have to go back and, and adjust, um, you know, when when they make changes. That's one of the things that I found to be so great about the theme park reporter community is that if you don't have it, it's possible that someone else will and people can kind of work together to figure out exactly what's happening because those things do shift. Yeah. And again, that it really does feel like we're like White House press corps because I do feel like, you know, those those journalists, they're traveling together um, I feel like they're asking questions that really do impact everyone's story. And I think sometimes it, it does feel like we're kind of that. Is there any part of the job that you feel like people who aren't familiar with what we do would be surprised by? I think sometimes the way people perceive my job is different than the reality. You know, I, I have close family and friends who I think still think that I just go on vacation (laughs) for a living, you know, that I'm just like hanging out in a theme park all day. And I, what they don't see, of course, is that behind the scenes, you are staying up until three in the morning, filing a story that beyond the fun part. And of course there is a fun part. I mean, all of it's fun, but you are doing these interviews behind the scenes that you are spending time researching and fact checking and writing copy and going back and forth with editors. And, you know, for me, I'm even building stories for some of my outlets, you know, in their website. And that takes time and work. And, uh, you know, people don't see the work on Instagram and things like that. They just see the fun, the fun. They just see the fun. Yeah, absolutely. Because I I always say that like the photo of me in my hotel room up to 3 a.m. because that's how late it always goes. It's just that's not nobody wants that. Nobody wants to see me eating like four cookies just to stay awake. (laughs) No, no. Yeah. I mean, I think Galaxy's Edge, the the opening at Disneyland. So, you know, the first time 
that media had been into an open Galaxy's Edge at either Disney Park, I just remember the scene of me sitting in the second, you know, usually when you stay in a Disney hotel, there's like the bed you sleep in and there's like, I call it like the dirty bed, right? Like where I just stash all my stuff and like, I just have like spreadsheets and like notes and like press releases. And I remember just like staying up super late with like this semicircle of press releases printed out. And it was just like, I mean, you know, where is the red tape, right? Because I just, it's just me shuffling through papers and yeah, no one wants to see that part. No, no. I guess they gave us like basically a information Bible for that one because there was so, (laughs) there's so much story in every detail and like the origins of everything like that one. I remember getting that stack of paper and being like, oh, I will, I will memorize this immediately. (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) felt like a term paper you yes. know like that one was interesting because usually when you go to an opening it's like you can post starting the second you're there and for the galaxy's edge disneyland opening i believe we had you had like depending on when if you went back to your hotel if you stayed in the media area you had about 90 minutes was it i had yeah about an, an hour and 45 minutes yes i remember being like what is my game plan am i going to take the 20 minute hit to go back to the hotel to be able to like file in a more quiet environment and it it was it was intense because you know that everyone is everyone's gonna have their story ready the second it comes out and you don't want to miss it. Yeah, and there were so many pieces to that story: merchandise, uh, food and beverage, attractions, land experience. There was so much to say and to just kind of like absorb that in ninety minutes. I think. If you were new to the theme park reporting game, that would have been very hard. You know, for for people who have been covering theme parks, we kind of it was probably easier to have a game plan. Yes, it's kind. It kind of feels like regular life is jogging, and when there's an opening like that, you are Olympic level sprinting. Yes, and yeah, sweating I, just as much. <laughs> yes, yeah. You know, I think um, there is obviously an amazing perk that comes with media events and and that you get to preview an attraction that for the next year likely will have a two-hour wait. And I, I don't take that for granted that I am able to see something that I know like families are going to be wasting, not wasting, but they're going to be spending a chunk of time just waiting to see it. And I just get to walk right on. But I think what people don't understand is that media events, media previews, they are long, grueling days, especially when you are trying to juggle filing stories and also filming. It is, it's a lot. It's exhausting. People don't realize that you're up until 3 a.m. the night before filing a story. You're getting up at 5 a.m. to put on camera makeup, to get, get to your, you know, your shot point. And then the day starts at 7 a.m. and it's all the way until like 9 or 10 p.m. that night. Yeah. And especially for someone who writes for an outlet or multiple outlets, even if you're there to cover different things, it you don't have full control over everything. So you have to work with other people. You have to get someone photos. You have to, if you're not inputting the story into their CMS or like their website themselves, you have to coordinate with the whole team. It's it's a lot. And when it, when you pull it off, it's the best feeling yep. to know that like you went there, you churned it out, you got on the ride, like you, you, you checked all the boxes, you did all your work and it got out in the right amount of time. And that's when you like end up at the boardwalk drinking. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, I I think like it at the end of the day, you would assume that you'll be tired, right? Because you've usually it's been 48 hours of just go 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 with maybe two and a half hours of sleep. And I think instead of just crashing, I mean, my adrenaline is just going and it's exciting. And for some reason, I, I still like I'm, I'm never able to sleep at Disney because I think my mind and my heart are just racing. Yeah, me neither. I love everything about it as uh, as wild as it is. I don't even know what word to use. But something about being like, this is happening. I have to both like be able to use my brain and my heart to report all this and understand what's going on and also keep everything straight, even though I just want to be like, it's fun. Go on it. Like there's just so <laughs> much happening. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I was built for that sleepless, energetic, sugar filled, like shove food in your face and keep on going type of environment. Absolutely. You can find Deanne Revel's work at Travel Channel, HGTV, Pop Sugar, Photos, and more. Hi, Carly. This is Victoria. I'm super excited about your podcast. Listen to every episode. So much fun. And I also love seeing Morty on your Instagram. Makes me very jealous. Um, I come from a Walt Disney family. My dad's been going to Disney ever since it opened, been taking me and my brother. But I only started following, um, like, Disney Parks uh, bloggers and journalists recently, like yourself. Um, and I would love to follow some more. Do you have any recommendations for any LGBT Disney Parks bloggers or journalists? Thank you so much. Hi, Victoria. So actually, Deanne Revel, who you just heard from, covers the parks, but particularly does so from an LGBTQ perspective. So I'd take a look at her work because I think she is exactly who you are seeking out. There are other proud members of the community within Disney reporting, like Dusty Sage and Mice Chat, but I also recommend Jeffrey Epstein, and not just because, as I mentioned earlier, he brought me Disney yummies over the weekend. He works for the Walt Disney Company, so he's not exactly a reporter on the outside, but he's still a really great source for any related news coming from the company, as well as providing some insight into how Disney honors pride for its employees. I hope that helps, and thank you for calling. Hi, Carly. It's Millie, the girl who will eventually inherit my mom's aggro crag. So first of all, I'd like to thank you for posting about the pretzels at Sonic. Truly life-changing. Second, I wanted to ask what your most memorable moment has been when plans have gone awry while reporting on theme parks. Thank you. Hi! Thank you so much for calling the Churro Hotline and confirming all of my thoughts about the Sonic Pretzel because it is so good. Now, oh my gosh, I'm trying to think through everything, but... In terms of plans going awry, that has happened to me maybe too many times for comfort. There was one trip I was on where I was reporting on all things Disney food, and I flew. Part of the trip was that I was in Disneyland reporting. That's when I went to 21 Royal. So I was eating all day. On top of it, went to 21 Royal. Was so ill after, like, just too much food in too short of a period of time. And after two days at Disneyland, I believe, I flew to Disney World. And I think that was the trip where everyone's flights were just 
cursed. Everyone had, like, anybody who was flying direct didn't even get in. I had a layover we almost didn't make. And then we arrived so late. I think some people landed at a different airport. Basically, we all missed part of the trip. And on top of that, I realized three days in that one, I immediately needed a new computer. So I had to overnight a laptop to Disney's Boardwalk Resort. And I realized that I got like a fancy new camera for doing all my reporting. Every photo was out of focus. Every single one. And it was not good. It was like true shenanigans. But everything else, I mean, there's other stuff that's mildly gone wrong, but My most memorable moment, I would say there's probably two. I think I've talked about it on the podcast before, but the time when there were three theme park openings within 24 hours, it was Volcano Bay, Pandora, and then Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout at Disneyland. So it was running between two events and then getting the airport and then getting to Disneyland. And the timing was so tight between landing and getting to the resort that I couldn't even park my car at LAX at the airport, I had to have my husband pick me up at the door, have food waiting in the car because it was like the first meal I ate that day and drive me directly to Disneyland. And I ended up being like a half an hour late, but that was the only way I could get it done. It was so wild just to do that much in such a short period of time. Really just put you on one. It was it was a lot. It was a lot. And then, I mean, most memorable moment going to Shanghai and seeing the entire theme park resort opening was very cool. I saw The Lion King on Broadway, that stage show there done in Mandarin, just just on like a different time zone, two days into being in China for the first time, had to get a visa to be there. It was just so much. And I saw the entire show and had no idea what was going on. So that's one of my more memorable moments. Definitely. Thank you so much for your call. Hi, Carly. Back in December of 2012, I was working at the Magic Kingdom in New Fantasyland. And specifically, I was working the press event for the New Fantasyland opening. And on um, one of the nights in early December for that event, there was a flying dragon that flew over Magic Kingdom. And It seems like a lot of wasted resources to never see this dragon again. So I guess I'm just curious what happened to this dragon? Why did it make a one-night appearance? And uh, will we ever see it again? And I think that's it. Thank you for uh, the podcast. I love listening. Ah, yes, the dragon. So for those who aren't in the know, this is like a pretty fabled thing. For one night only at the press preview of New Fantasyland, there was a giant dragon, I suppose, that flew overhead at the event and was never seen again. Now, I was not there. I was not writing about theme parks at that time, I don't believe. But I was able to talk to someone who was. Craig Williams of The Diz, who many of you I'm sure know and love, was there and sort of remembers it. I'll let him take it from here. Hi, Craig. Hello. (laughs) Thank you so much for hopping on to answer what someone called in as a question with that I also want to know and have been searching for answers for for many years, and that is the new Fantasyland opening night dragon. Let's talk about it. I hope I can actually help. I was there for it. I was in new Fantasyland, but I will also just preface this by saying 
I was pounding beers and <laughs> I only was doing that because it was the first time I was ever in Magic Kingdom where there was actually alcohol being served because this was this was pre-alcohol right. being in the restaurants. So I'm in there. This was my first media event. Uh, I wasn't even in this line of work yet. I was still uh, testing the waters with it. It was my first media event. And they're just handing out beer and wine in the Magic Kingdom. And I took advantage of it. And well, I hope it didn't <laughs> ruin my memory. Of well, maybe event. it'll have like a fun mystical haze over it. Oh, it definitely, the, the haze is there. And uh, I was going back trying to look for my video of it because I remember filming it and I can't even find it. So uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, but I, I, I have some memory of it. But so. you saw it, you saw the dragon appear for one night and then never again show its face. Yes, I, I did see it. It was one of the coolest things at the time that, that I had ever seen. I mean, it, it's kind of hard to to look at something like the uh when galaxy's edge opened up here in in orlando and you know we had the the drones coming up of the the x-wing like that that kind of alters my my perception now of the dragon because we had that a couple times and and you know that was really cool too but the the one time only dragon was really really neat it just it came out of nowhere it was it was not uh, we knew that it was happening and they they had been talking about testing the dragon right up to the event and stuff but no one had no one had known when it was actually going to pop up during the event so they i remember some music being on in the background and then everyone's eyes just went straight on this dragon and it must have flown around for maybe three four or five minutes and it was just kind of circling over beast castle or well it was all back of house i'm sure but it looked like it was circling over beast castle and uh, an overtop of the little mermaid attraction and you were all waiting for the fire to come out of it and then this one little uh, like sparkle of fireworks shoots out of it and that's that's it breathing its fire and then it was over and no one knew if it was going to come back out again that night no one knew if it was ever going to come back and uh, it did not just to spoil it what do you know if there was any intention for it to be in the parks on a regular basis I only know what people in the fan communities were talking about at that time. I didn't have any insider info, but all the fan sites were expecting this to be a, a staple of New Fantasyland. This was going to be something that, that we were going to see regularly as you were, you were in the parks. And it was going to be random, but it was still something that happened. And yeah, then it just it never came back. It was just one of those special little events that they they put on for media that that clearly would be amazing to see every single night but they just don't do it for some reason and and yeah that's i think feel like it's when thinking about what they did for galaxy's edge like they they did a lot of the same stuff as that dragon you know we had the drones with the x-wings and then uh the when rise of, was it rise of the resistance or galaxy's edge itself opened up they had the giant lightsaber fight that took place over multiple different parts of galaxy's edge and that happened once twice and then never again it's it's always bizarre when Disney decides to do that, but we all thought the dragon was coming back and it just never did. 
Wow. Yeah. Cause now when we see stuff at opening events, I, you know, I keep my expectations under the guise of this, that we know that the dragon was there for one night and then left. So I never assume anything is coming back ever. But at that point there was nothing to compare it to. Exactly. There was nothing to compare it to. It, it was just a bizarre one-off happening. And I'm so happy that I got to see it. It really was neat. I mean, Honestly, it was, it's one of those things that video can't do it justice. Uh, Any video you look at it, even if someone zooms all the way in, it it doesn't really show the detail that you could actually see there in person. And just how everyone stopped what they were doing and was looking up at the sky at it. Like you can't, you can't recreate that moment unless they did end up doing it every single night and and lots of people people got to see that but that was like the first of me finding out that Disney does all of these special things for media events that that no one else gets to see like uh that I feel like that was the first night of that event and then the second night of the event they had a One Republic concert happening in front of Test Track and I thought that would become a regular thing too and it just (laughs) never did they just like move into Spaceship Earth um I, I didn't know about that one yeah, it was it was very weird. They came out and played like a 20 minute set. And it was I want to say it was right before they started the marketing promotion with Disney for it's gonna be a good life. And I they, they used that in commercials for a while. But yeah, it's it's weird what they roll out for media sometimes and, and special invited guests and, and such and the dragon definitely up there in, in the weird factor. Thanks so much to Craig Williams from The Diz for coming on the pod. You can find his work at The Diz, but especially on The Diz's wonderful YouTube channel. Hi, Carly. This is Christina calling from California. And I just finished listening to one of your podcasts, and you said, see you real soon. And that could be anything that anyone says, but it really struck a chord, and I don't know why. Does Mickey say that as you leave the parks or someone? Help. Thanks. Love the podcast. So in my head, when I say see you real soon, I'm referencing Mickey Mouse Club. There's a song from way, way, way back when where they say it while doing the Mickey letter count off. And that I don't know when I saw that as a child or how that is in my brain, but that's always what I am referencing. I'll play it right now. Because we like you. Wow, without the video of the Mouseketeer singing it, it really sounds sort of ghastly, but that's what I'm referencing when I say it. I know Mickey has said it since, but I'm not sure of the origin of the first time that he said it in his little Mickey voice, which I'm not going to imitate, but that's what I'm referencing. Some old song that is burrowed into my brain from something in my childhood. Hi, Carly. My name is Lily. Um, I just finished listening to the second episode of Theme Park Food, and I had to tell you, I am literally on my way to hunt down the Disneyland pickles from Vienna Beef. Um, the pickle distributor is Chipico, and I'm definitely driving a solid 30 minutes to get them. Uh, I don't know why I felt like I had to share it with you, but I just felt like you would appreciate the dedication to how much I miss Disneyland pickles, and as well, tips. 
a great day. Um, and can't wait to listen to more on the podcast. Yes, get Disneyland pickles whenever you want. So for those who aren't invested in brine like we are, Chipico is the pickle end of Vienna beef. They are kind of the same company, one of the other, but that is the pickle. That's the pickle. Let me know if you liked it. Okay, bye. Hi, Carly. This is Melissa. I'm a big fan of your podcast. And I think I have a mystery that only you can solve. Um, I've been watching Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the old TV shows, um, and it noticed, I noticed that they actually filmed an episode in Disney World, and there are some shots of their hotel room, and I can't figure out which resort that's in. Is it Animal Kingdom Lodge? Is it Coronado Springs? I don't know, because is that really what the rooms looked like back then? It was like the late 90s, so it's you have any information or are able to do a little sleuthing, uh, let us know. Thanks very much. Have a great day. Wow. I watched so much Sabrina as a child, and I truly have no memory of this episode. So thank you for calling because I'm about to watch the whole thing on Hulu during lunch. Now, for anyone who's interested, this is season two, episode 23. And this episode which takes place in Animal Kingdom, debuted April 24th, 1998, two days after the park opened. Incredible synergy. We love to see it. Now, just before Sabrina is in her room, they pan to the full resort. And I believe it is Coronado Springs. I'm like 99.99% sure. I really wanted to get a photo of the old bedding there to match it up. But from what I found, it's Coronado Springs. Though, I'm going to float a mystery for you. I'm not entirely sure they recorded this in the hotel room, just because the camera, the way it's set up, the rooms don't have that much depth. So I'm not sure how they shot it and had it framed the way they did with the way those rooms are. They may have rebuilt it on a stage. I don't know. But once you open the door to the outside, it like that's Coronado Springs. You got the window facing outside. You got that exterior window. You got artwork. It just makes sense. Also, there's a plant in the room, which is very funny. Did these hotel rooms have plants in their rooms in the 90s? I do not remember this from my childhood. Somebody let me know. But basically, it's Coronado Springs. And thank you for learning me to this episode. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening this week and every week. Thank you to our guests for coming on this week. Deanne Revel, Arthur Levine, Gabrielle Russen, Craig Williams, and Valerie Marino. And thank you to Brooke McDonald and Todd Martins for chiming in. Follow all of them on social media. They are great and always blasting out theme park news. So I highly recommend that. And also to read their stories. I'll link out to everything in the show notes. Also, Please share this podcast with a friend who you think might like it. I really only love the things I love because friends recommended them to me. So I'm sure one of your Disney loving pals would love a couple hours break from watching The Office. Because if you're like me, 
You're on rewatch number five? Number six? It's troublesome. So anyone out there just might need a break from the Netflix monotony. So force a friend to listen, rate us five stars, please, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The biggest takeaway of this week, though, is that I encourage you to check out the Fomaly 5K fundraiser. The link is in the show notes, but you can find it on all of my social media and the Very Amusing website at very-amusing.com. Whether or not you want to enter the 5K or the raffle isn't what matters to me. I just want to recommend, if you can, to please donate money to the Second Harvest Food Bank on either coast or to Cast Member Pantry or anything theme park employee related along those lines to help those in need. Again, I'll leave all these links in the show notes, but just wanted to stress how hard of a time it's been for so many and how important it is to help if you have the means to do so. Very Amusing is edited delightfully by Jeff Fox. Thanks so much for listening. See you real soon. Hey, sweetheart, it's mom. I wanted you to know I loved part two. That was great, and the one thing that stood out out of everything is that you called it an Instagram bubble, and you made fun of me so much about that, and you called me all sorts of like, crazy mom, nobody says that. You said it. I'm so proud. Anyway, it was a great episode. I'm looking forward to next week. It's coming up soon, and I love you, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye, sweetie.